Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study for December 13th, 2020. We're excited to be finishing up our study of the Book of Mormon with Dr. Joseph Spencer today. I'm Rebecca DeSchweinitz and along with fellow Dialogue Foundation board member Chris Kimball, who will be helping out with our discussion and board chair Michael Austin, who's on standby for technical issues. I'm happy to welcome you all. If you are joining us for the first time, we are sorry you didn't know about this sooner and please know that all of our previous lessons are available as podcasts or videos and linked at dialoguejournal.com where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal with all of its amazing art, poetry, personal essays, fiction, sermons, and scholarship. Dr. Spencer's lesson will be added to our list of previous lessons by the end of the day. If you have enjoyed having access to more than five decades of dialogue and these gospel study lessons, we invite you to make a contribution in support of the mission and ongoing work of dialogue. Simply go to the subscribe and donate link on the website. We are heartened by the news that a vaccine for COVID-19 is becoming available, but the pandemic isn't over yet. And we know that these gospel study lessons have been a source of uplift, renewal and most important community in these challenging times. And they certainly have been uh, all of that for us. And we have heard your interest in continuing. We're talking about possibilities and invite you to stay tuned. The best way to stay connected and informed is to sign up for our newsletter. So if you aren't on our email newsletter list yet, uh, uh, please head over to the website, dialoguejournal.com and sign up. In the meantime, please join us next Sunday, December 20th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, 6 Mountain, 5 Pacific, uh, for Alaska uh, uh, time for our next Dialogue Fireside with Brian Kershiznik. Those of us live on Zoom this morning are welcome to post respectful and relevant comments and questions in the chat. I'll also uh, try to keep track of what folks have to say on Facebook, where we are also live. We look forward to integrating some of your comments and questions into today's lesson. We're thrilled to have Dr. Joe Spencer teaching today. Dr. Spencer wishes he had the talent to produce beautiful things, music or poetry or art, but instead he's a philosopher and an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University. The author of dozens of articles on philosophy, theology and scripture, including Theological Studies of Napoleon Dynamite and the Book of Mormon's Ubiquitous It Came to Pass. Professor Spencer is also the author or editor of eight books, most recently of First Nephi, A Brief Theological Introduction, which was recently published by the Maxwell Institute. He's in the midst of a handful of projects, including an investigation of Hugh Nibley's intellectual contribution to the Latter-day Saint tradition and a detailed study with Kimberly Matheson Ber Berkey of gender in the Book of Mormon. He foolishly serves as the editor of the journal Book of Mormon Studies and a vice president for the Book of Mormon Studies Association. His wife, Karen, homeschools their five children in lovely downtown Provo while she reads obsessively about the history of domestic architecture. Dialogue is committed to providing a space for the expression of diverse perspectives and for some of the faith's most vibrant thinking. We're thankful for Professor Spencer's preparation, perspective, and voice, as is always the case. The views expressed today 
are those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, BYU, or any other organization. We begin today with music, King Jesus Hath a Garden, performed by the choir of King's College, Cambridge. After the music, our opening prayer will be offered by Teresa Wellborn. Teresa has been published in various journals, including Dialogue, BYU Studies, Otis Nebula, and several anthologies, such as Fire in the Pasture and Dove Song. Former associate poetry editor and submissions editor for Segula, she now serves on their poetry board. She has degrees in English literature and library science. A brio killer, her trademarks are red lipstick and reading while running. When not on a mountaintop, she dwells in possibility. She blogs around. Our dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are gathered here today all over the world to worship thee and to enlarge our minds and our hearts and our spirits regarding thy word. Please help us in learning and in understanding that we are truly beloved. Teach us to sit still. Teach us to adore stillness and communion with thee and thy spirit and understanding. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, good morning and happy Sabbath. Uh, I hope it's a, a beautiful Sabbath for you wherever you're at um, in this sacred Advent season. Um, our task today is to look at Moroni 7 through 10. We're covering two weeks of lessons here in some sense, um, because uh, this will be the last of these um, gospel studies this year. Uh, and so in, in addition to Moroni 7 through 9, which is what Come Follow Me is working through this week, we'll also say some things about Moroni 10 and uh, in some sense, try to put a capstone on all of this uh, study of the Book of Mormon this year. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'd like to spend some time just lecturing. So, um, sorry, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to lecture for a bit and uh, talk our way through a couple of passages here in Moroni 7 and in Moroni 10. Uh, and, then, uh, and then I'll wrap that up and we'll open it up for discussion and comments and just do that all as one sort of portion of the of our time together. Uh, so I'll talk for a half hour, maybe 40 minutes or something like that, and then we'll just open it up for discussion. Uh, what I'd like to focus on here is um, just Moroni 7 and really just the first 25 or so verses of Moroni 7. And then we'll skip and say just a couple of words about a part of Moroni 10. Obviously we're leaving out whole parts of this text, all of Moroni 8 and Moroni 9. Uh, which have some very complicated and, uh, in some cases, very fraught um, passages. Uh, I would uh, love to make recommendations on good things to read on those chapters, uh, but for today, we're going to leave them to one side uh, and look at uh, some other things happening here in the text. Uh, so my primary question today that I want to uh, keep, uh, keep a focus on um, oh, I should have mentioned, uh, because we'll do discussion and such uh, toward the end, if you have questions that develop as we go along or comments you'd like to make and so on, you can feel free to put those in the chat and Chris uh, and Rebecca will keep an eye on that. And when we come to the discussion portion, then we'll sort of bring that all up. 
So the driving question for me today is this. So of course, what we're getting in the book of Moroni is a kind of hodgepodge, right? A miscellaneous collection of bits and pieces uh, that Moroni has put together in a book he didn't expect to write, he tells us. Uh, and it doesn't seem to have a clear center of gravity. Uh, it really does feel like a kind of collection. But in Moroni 7, 8, 9, we get a collection of items from the archives, you could say, uh, some things that um, Moroni has brought together from his father's writings, teachings, and such, uh, and giving he's giving these to us here to deal with. The question I want to ask as we read Moroni 7 is, why does Moroni care about this sermon? Uh, can we get to the bottom of why this matters uh, for Moroni? Uh, I don't want to keep that question uh, in a front and center position as we go along, but I do want to bring it up at several points uh, to try to reflect on the bearing of this sermon for Moroni, and then I think as a result, the bearing it should have for us as readers. Uh, but mostly what I want to do in setting that up then is really just to riddle through the logic, the order and organization of this sermon that, uh, that Moroni gives us from his father. I'm going to share my screen just because uh, that way everyone has the text right in front of them as we go along, because I'm going to do a lot of close uh, reading. So that should be visible. Um, uh, yeah, I want to do a lot of close reading and really kind of riddle through the text. And so it'll be nice and handy, I think, just to have this uh, in front of you. Uh, all right. Of course, the very first verse here uh, is Moroni speaking, setting up the sermon. Uh, and the way he summarizes the sermon at first is in terms of faith, hope, and charity. You can see that there in the second and third lines. These are words which Mormons spake concerning faith, hope, and charity uh, as he taught uh, his people in the synagogue. But as the sermon unfolds, there's actually quite a bit more going on than simply a focus on faith, hope, and charity. Uh, you may have noted, as you've read this before, that we don't get a word about faith until verse 21. Hope, of course, till still later, and charity until the very end of the sermon. Uh, we get a 20-verse lead-up to this faith, hope, and charity business. These are the verses I really want to riddle through. What is it that Moroni sees in Mormon's words, and what is Mormon trying to do in those words as he builds up a context in which to think about faith and hope and charity? Uh, so let me pick up in verse 3. Uh, here's, a, I think, a place to get started in earnest. Mormon says this uh, of the people listening to him that day in the synagogue. Uh, he calls them the peaceable followers of Christ, those who have obtained a sufficient hope by which they can enter into the rest of the Lord from this time henceforth until they rest with him in heaven. Uh, peaceable followers of Christ, those who have a sufficient hope to enter into the rest of the Lord. Uh, how does he know this of them? This is what verse 4 addresses. I judge these things of you because of your peaceable walk with the children of men. What Mormon says relatively straightforward here, straightforwardly here is that it is because of a peaceable walk uh, on the part of his, uh, his hearers that he can tell that they are peaceable followers of Christ. The connection he spells out in verse 5. I remember the word of God, which saith, by their works ye shall know them. If their works be good, then they are good also. That seems to be the logic that allows him to draw the connection between verse 3 and verse 4. They are peaceable followers because uh, uh, he can see their peaceable walk. Their works are good. They too are good. This is where Mormon begins. That might sound like it's just merely an introduction, a kind of attempt for Mormon to 
to chum up with his audience a bit or something like that. But it turns out he wants to reflect at some length on this, um, this question of goodness, of recognizing good works and recognizing good persons. He spends the next several verses, verses 6 through 10, uh, talking about uh, recognizing evil and that kind of thing for a moment. We're going to skip over those to verse 11. Because in verse 11, he draws a, a more general uh, point or a more general uh, lesson, you could say. So here's how he words this in verse 11. A bitter fountain cannot bring forth good water. Neither can a good fountain bring forth bitter water. Wherefore, a man being a servant of the devil cannot follow Christ. And if he follow Christ, he cannot be a servant of the devil. All right, so there he wants to draw, it seems, a kind of general principle, the same kind of thing he's talking about in those first couple of verses early in the sermon. Uh, good comes from good, evil comes from evil. He can recognize peaceable followers because of their peaceable walk. Uh, presumably he could recognize very unpeaceable followers uh, from an unpeaceable walk. But he seems here to give us a kind of split, uh, split world. Good things come from good fountains evil things from evil fountains. Verses 12 and 13, he now sums this up in the broadest terms. These are verses we want to read very carefully. He says this, Wherefore, all things which are good cometh of God, and that which is evil cometh of the devil. For the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do that which is evil continually. But behold, that which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Wherefore, everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve him is inspired of God. Now, these couple of verses might at first leave us a little cold, uh, especially for those of us that are attracted to the complexity, uh, that, uh, the complexity of morality, the complexity of life that we find on display in uh, the best works of art, uh, the best novels, uh, the best poetry best films, etc. cetera, uh, this seems too polarizing, too uh, black and white, too um, oversimplified, as if there were uh, simply in the world uh, a kind of dualism, a moral dualism, things that are purely evil and things that are purely good or something like that. But I want to read verses 12 and 13 more carefully than that. This is actually a much more complicated description of things than it seems at first, I think. There are clearly two poles here good and evil. Uh, but notice some peculiar things about the way that Mormon presents this. So notice in verse 12, he, uh, he doesn't have an exactly uh, symmetrical presentation of good and evil. He speaks of all things which are good coming from God, but then he speaks of simply that which is evil coming of the devil. Notice that there's a, a plurality of things that are good here and a kind of totality of things that are good. Uh, there are many things which are good here, and they uh, all in some sense can be gathered together, all things which are good. Over against that, he mentions only or refers only uh, obliquely to the evil, as if maybe it's rare or exceptional uh, or even singular, that which is evil. This is suggestive, rather than there just being a kind of the world divides into two simple camps, it seems that there is a, a an abundance of good things uh, and a kind of total picture of good things. Whereas perhaps evil is a kind of stain 
in that picture, singular, rare, exceptional. As he goes on, he says this, the devil is an enemy unto God and fighteth against him continually. Notice that there's no reciprocal gesture. It's never claimed in these two verses that God is an enemy to the devil and fighteth against him continually. Here again, there's an asymmetry, right? There's a certain kind of asymmetry between God and the devil. The devil here is uh, pictured as being uh, active and angry and fighting and contentious. God is not. Uh, whether God is in some sense supposed to be above that or indifferent to it or unaffected by it uh, or simply remains more stable, less um, animated in some sense. Uh, but there isn't here a kind of battle between good and evil. There is good and lots of it. And then there's a kind of battle against that. Uh, the devil here is the one continually fighting. That seems to me interesting and more complicated than the picture at first might seem. Let's add another uh, point that's peculiar. The devil is described as inviting and enticing to sin and to do that which is evil continually. God is not described as inviting or enticing here. Uh, verse 13 does speak of inviting and enticing in connection with God, but it's not God who does it. That which is of God inviteth and enticeth to do good continually. Or again, everything which inviteth or enticeth to do good is inspired of God. But notice that there's no talk here of God doing the inviting or enticing. Things invite and entice to do good, and those things are of God. By contrast, the devil invites and entices to sin. So here's another kind of asymmetry and another bit of a surprise. The picture here is not one of God uh, here trying to woo people to the good, but of good things trying to woo people to God. By contrast, the devil is directly inviting and enticing to do what's evil. So we have a number of things here that are a bit surprising when we slow down and read these, these verses carefully. Uh, a number of things that suggest that rather than having a kind of simple polarity, there is good, there is evil, which team are you on? We have a complex description of the world as a place where there are many things, all things that are good uh, and maybe rare and exceptional things which are evil. Uh, we have a picture where the devil is an enemy to God, but there's no talk of God being an enemy to the devil. Uh, where the devil is fighting continually against God, uh, active and angry in some sense, but there's no talk of God reciprocating. We also have a situation where the devil invites and entices uh, and tries to draw people toward evil, but where good things draw us toward God rather than God drawing us toward good things. All of that, I think, um, suggests that Mormon is depicting the world here more complexly than we might at first uh, think. We have a picture here where the world is filled with good things, and our task is to allow them to draw us to God. Now, with all of that in mind, verses 12 and 13 read slowly and carefully, we get this next from Mormon, a kind of warning. This is verse 14. Take heed, my beloved brethren, he says, that you do not judge that which is evil to be of God, or that which is good and of God to be of the devil. In this complex picture, Mormon has a kind of worry. Don't misjudge. Don't take the evil to be of God or the good to be of the devil. Don't confuse these categories. Here it does feel like we're going back to a very simple polarity. Uh, but because of this warning, Mormon is concerned uh, that those hearing him that day in the synagogue are liable to confuse these, um, 
these things, that what is good and what is not. Here we might pause for the first time and ask why Moroni is interested in this. Uh, why is Moroni so concerned uh, about this, uh, this set of questions? Why is he um, so interested in what Mormon has to say about all of this? And here, I think we might, uh, if you take a kind of snapshot of Moroni's uh, writings running from the end of Mormon, Mormon 8 and 9, all the way through to Moroni 10, there's a very clear pattern about what concerns Moroni. Moroni is worried uh, most intensely about how the book that his father has written and that he's received and added to and completed, he's worried about how that book will be received in the last days and the time of its coming forth. He's intensely concerned about it. If you read Mormon 8, uh, he's borderline, um, borderline pathologically anxious about it, right? He's uh, deeply concerned about whether Gentiles will get in the way, whether this book will ever accomplish the task of calling the remnant of Israel to an understanding of their covenantal relationship to God. Uh, he's worried about whether people will be too learned to receive the book. Uh, he's worried about whether, we'll, whether people will be believing enough in Christ to find Christ in the book etc, etc. Uh, of course, in Ether 12, you find Moroni worried very deeply about whether the book is even good enough to be received in a learned Gentile context, uh, and so on. And as late as chapter 10, he's going to be, of Moroni, he's going to be uh, trying to talk carefully to his audience about how, uh, how they might even come to know of the truth of the book at all. Moroni's deepest concern is how this book will be received. And here he copies down a sermon from his father about how to make sure not to take what is good and of God to be of the devil, or what is evil to be of God. I suspect that Moroni's interest in this sermon is rooted in his concern uh, about his audience not knowing how to receive uh, the Book of Mormon as good and of God, rejecting it perhaps as being evil when it's actually of God. So let that hover in the back of our minds as we, uh, as we go on. Uh, but it seems that uh, Mormon has a more general concern, but Moroni might have a very specific inflection of verse 14 in his head. How do we make sure we can recognize the Book of Mormon to be among the good things that invite and entice us to come to God? But let's circle back to the way Mormon's thinking about this. So he's got a warning. Don't misjudge. Don't judge evil to be of God and good to be of the devil. Why warn? Because verse 15, this detail, he says, it is given unto you to judge that you may know good from evil. The fact of the matter is that we are responsible for deciding, for discerning, for uh, being able to determine that this is in fact good and this is in fact evil. Uh, we have to sift among this complex, uh, multiply asymmetrous world and find in it uh, what is good. How do we do that? Well, as verse 15 continues, notice what Mormon says. The way to judge is as plain, that you may know with a perfect knowledge, as plain as the daylight is from the dark night. Here again, it sounds like we're going back to sort of simple polarities, right? Well, there's evil, there's good, you know good, you know evil. Uh, this is plain. I think we have got to be careful about that word plain, however. Plain doesn't necessarily mean easy, nor does it necessarily mean uh, easily discernible plain. There is some uh, definite way of distinguishing good from evil here. That is possible. Uh, 
Uh, and in fact, it can be done perfectly, apparently, right? We can do it with a perfect knowledge. It's as clear as daylight from dark night. Once we know the light by, by which we can see these things. Okay, so Mormon is warning us, verse 14, be careful, don't misjudge. Verse 15, he's saying, because you have to judge. This is something you have to sort out. Uh, and I want to talk about the way to judge, he says. Verse 16, now he says this. Uh, in fact, look at the last line on the screen here. Uh, this is in the middle of verse 16. This is the last line quoted from verse 16 here. He says, I show unto you the way to judge. Mormon seems concerned to uh, make sure that we know how to judge between good and evil, to recognize what is good as coming from God and what is evil as coming from the devil. He wants to give us some guidance. That itself makes clear that plain here can't mean easy or obvious or readily available. It's got to be shown to us. That's interesting. And a key moment here is the beginning of verse 16, apparently. Uh, Mormon says this, for behold, the spirit of Christ is given to every man that he may know good from evil. Part of what's at stake here is this spirit of Christ. We'll circle back to that and try to make some sense of it as we go along. For the moment, let's narrow in here on what Mormon promises to do. I show unto you the way to judge. I mean, we ought to be excited, I think, at this point in the text. Uh, I certainly hope the people sitting in the synagogue that day with Mormon were, that as they hear these words, they think, okay, uh, you're laying on us a pretty heavy responsibility here. Let's not screw this up. Uh, and you're going to tell us how not to screw it up, how rightly to judge. All right. So what's the instruction look like? All right. This is now verses 16 and 17. I show unto you the way to judge, he says there in the second line. Now here's the explanation or the guidance or the direction he gives. Everything which inviteth to do good and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Wherefore you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. But whatever thing persuadeth men to do evil and believe not in Christ and deny him and serve not God, then you may know with a perfect knowledge it is of the devil. This is how the devil works. Okay, is it just me? Or might someone reading these verses feel a bit uh, like they just got hoodwinked, right? Mormon said just back in verses 12 and 13, very clearly, uh, here's, how you, uh, here's how you can make a, the sense of the difference between good and evil. Good comes from God. Evil comes from the devil. All things which are good come of God. That which is evil comes of the devil. Now he says, now I'm going to show you how to judge because I don't want you to screw this up. And then he says, basically the same thing. Doesn't it feel that way? As you read verses 16 and 17, good things, right, they point you to God. Evil things point you away. Isn't he just repeating himself? Does he have nothing to say really about how to show us the way to judge? Uh, is he just repeating the same platitude? But no, there's a real difference here between verses 12 and 13 and what we're getting now in verses 16 and 17. It's subtle, especially maybe for Latter-day Saints, I think this is subtle uh, because of a certain imprecision we have when we talk about God. There's a word that shows up here in verses 16 and 17 repeatedly that never shows up in verses 12 and 13. The word is Christ. In verses 12 and 13, everything is put simply in terms of God uh, in a kind of non-Christian or pre-Christian or extra-Christian picture. The picture we're getting there is just a question of whether things do or don't uh, invite or entice us uh, to do good, and then as a result, whether they come from 
God. But here in verses 16 and 17, Mormon has said much the same thing, but recast it in Christian terms. The question now becomes, does something invite you uh, or persuade you to believe in Christ? If so, it is sent forth by the power and gift of Christ. Or does something persuade you to believe not in Christ and deny him? Then you know it's of the devil. Mormon has put a a different kind of filter over the same picture, uh, a Christian filter. This seems to be why verse 16 opens by speaking of the spirit of Christ. If we want to know the way to judge, apparently, the way to judge, to decide this is good uh, and comes of God, this is evil and comes of the devil, the way to decide that is by connecting things to specifically Christ by asking what this thing does or doesn't do with Christ. This is a, uh, for Moroni, uh, sorry, for Mormon, and for Moroni uh, reproducing him here, uh, for Mormon, this is a profoundly Christian question. And notice that Christian here doesn't mean um, part of uh, global or historical Christianity. It doesn't mean member of a Christian church because the spirit of Christ is given to every man in verse 16. Uh, Every one of us has something in us that allows us to recognize uh, or to connect with uh, Christ, that he may know good from evil, as the wording Mormon uses. So there is something here uh, in every one of us that allows us in some way to recognize Christ, to see something uh, in light of Christ. In fact, light is exactly the metaphor Mormon goes on to use in the next verse. This is now verse 18. Now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ. He'll go on to say some things further that we'll look at in a moment. But notice what he's done here. We tend as Latter-day Saints to speak of the light of Christ as a kind of metaphysical entity or something like that. And maybe that's fully appropriate uh, in certain contexts and so on. It's not clear to me that Mormon has anything like that in mind here. He seems to be using light not to refer to some metaphysical principle or something that fills the universe uh, that we might equate with conscience or something like that. Uh, He seems to be referring uh, to or using the word light as a simple metaphor. Christ is a light by which we may judge. Christ is the light by which we may judge. Christ is a light we shine on things so that we are seeing in daylight and not in dark night. This is the way that is plain so that we can uh, judge good and evil. We have to shine Christ on things. The spirit of Christ is in us, is given to us all so that we recognize what does and doesn't connect to Christ. But we can shine that on something. And then we can, uh, in some sense, discern good and evil. That seems to be the way that Mormon is talking about this. Uh, Here again, maybe we could uh, raise once more the question that's driving Moroni's inclusion of this sermon in his his book. Uh, If his deepest worry here is about how the Book of Mormon will be received in the last days, about whether we will be able to swallow it at all, the question for Moroni as much as for Mormon is the question of whether the Book of Mormon invites and entices to come to Christ, whether we can read the book and see Christ in it. 
whether shining the light of Christ on the Book of Mormon, we see it as inviting us and persuading us to come to Christ and to God. Again, this seems to be Moroni's uh, interest here. But let's circle back here again to Mormon and what he's saying. So seeing that ye know the light by which you may judge, he says, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye do not judge wrongfully. There's that warning all over again. With that same judgment which ye judge, ye shall also be judged. Then says this in verse 19, wherefore I beseech of you that you should search diligently in the light of Christ that you may know good from evil. Notice here that the light of Christ, uh, this metaphor he's using, uh, is definitely nothing simple, automatic, uh, immediate. Here Mormon describes the work of looking at things in light of Christ as something that requires diligent search. Uh, the light of Christ here is a searchlight. Uh, something like that, right? It's not a kind of immediate conviction. When we speak of the light of Christ and mean something like conscience, I think we actually run the risk, uh, at least in light of Mormon's discourse here, we run the risk of, uh, of misconstruing the task of judging good from evil as overly easy. Conscience is immediate. We feel the, the sting of conscience in a moment. Uh, but... Uh, but Mormon speaks of diligent search. These are two very different experiences. Conscience also, I mean, there are reasons to be a little suspicious of conscience. Uh, good work in history has shown how much human conscience changes with time, that in different ages, we think differently about things, that those in positions of privilege and power often don't have their conscience pricked when they see deeply inhumane things going on right before them. Their conscience has not been formed rightly so to speak. Uh, conscience is, um, is too unstable, too untrustworthy to be an immediate judge of good and evil. They, it provides us our moral intuition, but moral intuition is historically determined, culturally shaped. What we're talking about here in Moroni 7 is something that shouldn't be, at least, culturally shaped. Christ. This is the light. And that requires diligent search, not immediate conviction, immediate intuition, but instead serious intellectual and spiritual work. How do I look at things and decide in light of Christ whether they're good? Uh, how do I know who Christ is at all? How do I recognize what Christ is um, so that I can shine his light on things? This is a much more difficult picture and one that, uh, that can't simply be immediate, can't simply be a kind of intuition. This takes work and effort. All right, so he says that we should search diligently in the light of Christ that we may know good from evil. And then he makes a kind of promise at the end of verse 19 here. If ye will lay hold upon every good thing and condemn it not, he certainly will be a child of Christ. Every good thing, that's a tall order, right? He's asking us to lay hold upon every good thing, condemn no good thing. If we're to err on the side of calling things good or calling things evil here, it seems we are to err on the side of calling things good because Mormon's worry is that we will not lay hold on some good thing, that we will condemn something that comes from God. This is his worry. This is his concern. And if this is right, 
then we can ask once more what Moroni sees in all of this. Moroni's concern is that there is a particular good thing that uh, will be too easily condemned, too easily foregone or set aside the Book of Mormon. How can we recognize whether this thing is good? It is too easy to pass over it, uh, defaulting to identifying the evil rather than defaulting to identifying the good. Uh, of course, that's our tendency as human beings, right? Uh, we've evolved very naturally to shun anything of danger, anything foreign, anything that uh, we just can't quite get our heads around. Mormon seems to be asking his audience uh, and Moroni through Mormon asking us as readers of the Book of Mormon uh, to have a very different approach to things here. Can we instead, uh, instead of defaulting to identifying evil and shunning it, can we default to looking for the good? Uh, can we lay hold upon every good thing and condemn nothing that is good? A harder task. All right, what have we got so far? Well, we've got a picture here where we've got uh, a great many things we're trying to find that are good in the world, uh, that are difficult, that it takes Christ to see rightly, uh, that we are liable to miss if we can't shine Christ as a light on them. So the question we should be asking is, so then how do I know Christ well enough to do this? Well, this is the next topic Mormon addresses. Verse 20, he says this, now my brethren, how is it possible that you can lay hold upon every good thing? How do we do this? And now he says, I come to that faith of which I said I would speak. And I will tell you the way whereby you may lay hold on every good thing. Faith here is an answer to a 20 verse long question, right? Faith is not just a topic here that's worth talking about. Uh, Mormon is not here just trying to think in a systematic way about faith, hope, and charity because it's kind of cool to have triads and do theology with them. No, uh, there is a burning question for him. How can you possibly lay hold of the good and recognize it as good? How can you ensure that you aren't condemning something that comes from God? Well, that's going to require a clear vision of Christ. You've got the spirit of Christ given to you, but then how do you take that, connect it with concrete experiences of looking at things in the world and somehow see the good that is there? This apparently requires faith. Faith is the only way to do this. Why? How? Well, we'll do this quickly. For behold, Mormon says, God knowing all things, being from everlasting to everlasting, he sent angels to minister unto the children of men to make manifest concerning the coming of Christ. And in Christ there should come every good thing. God also declared unto prophets by his own mouth that Christ should come. And there were divers ways that he did manifest things unto the children of men which were good, and all things which are good cometh of Christ. Otherwise men were fallen, and there could no thing good thing come unto them. Summing up in verse 25, wherefore, by the ministering of angels, and by every word which proceeded forth out of the mouth of God, men began to exercise faith in Christ. And thus, by faith, they did lay hold upon every good thing. Thus, it was until the coming of Christ, but as you, as you know, the chapter goes on to say, just because Christ came doesn't mean this picture changes. We are still dependent on the angelic word, the ministering of angels, and every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God, and prophets, and divers ways. We are continually dependent on this. Faith here is always trust in the word that has come from God. 
and the word that has come from God is the word that announces Christ, in whom all things are good. There's a picture here then, right? Mormon wants to say, how do you know the good? How do you seek it out? How do you see it? How do you discern it? Well, you need to shine Christ on these things and see them. But how on earth do you get your head around Christ? This is the question of faith. Faith is the only way we can discern the world rightly. Uh, only in faith can we say the word that announces Christ uh, can clarify the world for me, show me the world, and show me the good that is in the world so that I won't reject anything that speaks rightly of Christ. This, uh, this apparently is faith. And Mormon spends the next almost 20 verses laying out faith before he then turns briefly to hope and to charity. This, it seems, is the question for Mormon and for Moroni. How will you recognize Christ uh, in the Book of Mormon? How will you discern him there? This is going to take dependence, deep dependence, on the word that has come through angels, uh, through prophets, uh, through every means God has used to speak to human beings. That seems to be our picture. All right, so uh, let's tie this up a little bit uh, and then turn very briefly to Moroni chapter 10. All of this amounts to a single picture. Our task is not to miss any good, all good things, all things that are good coming from God. We've got to grab hold of all of them, lay hold on all of them. Uh, somehow we have got to be so careful not to condemn anything coming from God, slow and careful so that we don't reject anything coming from God. And that means we need faith in a very intense way. We have got to depend radically on the Christ announced in the angelic word. Um, the word we're, of course, celebrating this very season, right? Uh, the word of the angel, the glad tidings of great joy, that Christ is born, that God has come into the world to change things uh, right to their very core and open up the possibility for us of seeing how much more good there is in the world than we had realized. A word on Moroni 10, and just a word. Of course, Moroni 10 opens with this uh, famous passage we tend to call a promise. Moroni speaks of it as exhortation. You can see that at the end of verse two there of Moroni 10. I steal up these records after I've spoken a few words by way of exhortation. And verse three, which opens that uh, promise, begins, I would exhort you. We'll skip over verse three for our purposes today, though I'd love to spend an hour on, the, on this verse with you. Uh, but verse four, notice, is also exhortation. And here's where the invitation that Moroni gives us comes. When you shall receive these things, I would exhort you. His exhortation is what? He exhorts us to ask God, the eternal father, in the name of Christ, if these things, the Book of Mormon, these plates, are not true. And then the promise, if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, this passage is, I assume, deeply familiar uh, to all of you, right? Uh, to everyone here. This passage is uh, well known. It may be the first passage most people ever read uh, from the Book of Mormon in one way or another. I want to point out a couple of things about this passage in light of Moroni 7. Uh, maybe in light of the whole book of Moroni. First note this, Moroni, uh, Moroni here does not ask us simply to ask God a question, to ask whether the Book of Mormon is true. He tells us to ask God, the eternal father, something about the Book of Mormon. 
And that title he uses for God should jump out at us. If you go digging through scripture, you'll find that God, the eternal father, shows up in exactly nine places here in this promise, and otherwise only in the prayers we call the sacrament prayers, the prayers over the bread and wine, both in the book of Moroni and in the Doctrine and Covenants. God, the eternal father, is a sacramental title for God. And the picture Moroni seems to be giving us here is one of taking a book to God like we take bread or wine to God and asking God to inhabit them, right? Uh, asking God to inhabit this book. Uh, there seems to be a kind of sacramental gesture here. Can we take mere pages, paper, ink, and so on to God and let him speak in it? We're also to ask note, uh, in the name of Christ, here, Moroni seems to have taken Mormon's message to heart. You can't see the truth in this book if you aren't shining the light of Christ on it. I don't think he's just prescribing a kind of form of prayer here. Make sure you say this in the name of Christ. But that the way you approach this thing is discerning its relationship to Christ very specifically. A third thing to note here is the rhetorical function of the word not. We are to ask if these things are not true. Now, I'm a philosopher, which means I tend to play games with things like this. If I ask God if these things are not true, and I feel the spirit, does that mean they're true or does that mean they're not true, right? But rhetorically, this is much simpler than that might suggest. If I ask if these things are not true, my assumption as I come to the book uh, and I come to the task of, the pr of prayer is that they are true. I'm asking God to disconfirm it because I am convicted because I feel right down in my gut that something is right here. Looking at it in light of Christ, I see good here. And I go to God and ask if these things are not true. This, uh, I think, is the prayer that Moroni is actually enjoining on us. The promise is the thing I want to dwell on for a final moment and then share a word of testimony about the Book of Mormon. Uh, the promise, he says, if we ask this uh, kind of thing with a sincere heart and with real intent and having faith in Christ, Here's the promise. He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. I love, I love that Moroni here does not say that he will tell us whether the book is true. The book is true here. The truth of the book is assumed on Moroni's part. And what will happen is not that we will know whether it is true or not, or even just know that it is true. The truth of the book will become manifest. It will come into the light. We will see it rightly. That seems to be the issue. And I love the phrase, the truth of it, because it's not then whether it's true or not, a simple proposition, the book is true, the book is false, but instead the truth of the book, which sounds way bigger than whether the book is true or not. What has to come into the light, what has to become manifest is the truth of the book, the whole truth of the matter. Uh, whatever in it is true, will become visible to us. Uh, that I think is a beautiful uh, invitation and a beautiful promise. What Moroni seems to be concerned about for us uh, is that we read the book rightly and seek the good in the book rightly and not, uh, not miss what God is trying to do uh, in this book. My conviction for whatever it's worth, uh, my testimony is that God is in this book that uh, this has been uh, so worth our study this year and every year, uh, because in this book, uh, we feel, we find, if we shine the right light on it, 
we find invitation to Christ and to every good thing in Christ. Uh, that I find in this book over and over. Are there difficulties in the book? Heavens, yes. Uh, the way that uh, Moroni himself puts this back in Mormon 9 is, if God has made manifest to you our imperfections, then thank God that he has done so. That's Mormon 9.31. Thank God that he has made manifest unto you our imperfections, so that you may be wiser than we have been. Every fault in the book is more reason to praise God. And every good thing in the book is reason to lay hold of it and let it bring us to God. That is something I feel really deeply as I work on this book. Uh, and I hope as we, uh, as we celebrate the Advent season, uh, that we can find uh, that this babe in a manger, uh, the Christ child, shines a light on the Book of Mormon as he does on everything else and helps us to see every good and lay hold of it. Uh, okay, I'm going to wrap up there and, uh, and we can open up for any questions, comments, uh, discussion. I have not been watching the chat at all, <laughs> so I'll leave it to you, Chris and Rebecca, to, to see what's going on there. Yeah, so maybe I'll start off by um, kind of getting us to think and talk more about um, this idea that you're kind of ending on that, that we're reshaping what in some ways by asking like, is this not, are these things not true? That it's reshaping kind of what true means. Um, and it's also bringing in uh, the process that goes into you know, creating scripture um, and that it's more of uh, a truth is more of an invitation than kind of something that's already determined. <laughs> Could you maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, it's impossible in a certain sense to peel apart the true and the good, right? Though um, we tend to want to do that. And, uh, but how, how on earth to do that, right? That what is true is what invites points to something here. Um, and, uh, and what is good is then true. The difficulty I think we're always up against in that kind of a context is that we have a really shallow notion of truth and a really shallow notion of goodness, right? A shallow notion of truth that is simply going to be a matter of fact or of theory, et cetera, et cetera, rather than something much more robust that can't be peeled out of goodness. But also we have a really shallow notion of goodness where we tend to think of goodness as whatever seems morally intuitive to us. Uh, which means that if you're a liberal, it looks this way. And if you're a conservative, it looks this way. And if you're a moderate, it looks this way. And if you're a radical, it looks whatever, right? We have these moral intuitions and we take those as being our immediate conception of truth and goodness, sorry, of goodness especially. Uh, and we have a hard time then peeling that apart from, uh, or recognizing that that can't be peeled apart from truth because we think it's simply a matter uh, of what is uh, inherently recognizable as moral and good much more complicated picture I think we're getting here. Yeah, I love this um, kind of, and folks on chat are recognizing the challenge um, to grapple with our beliefs and judgments, right? And that this, uh, this vision of, um, it is a lot more compelling <laughs> than, uh, than that we're searching for good rather than that we're at war against, uh, you know, some 
you know, already defined kind of evil, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, one way that the uh, both Moroni 7 and Moroni 10 can come together here is in your comments about, um, and, and the questions that are being asked in the chat, uh, about how we discern, how we understand good or find God in the scriptures. Um, I'm relating back to your comments about, about conscience being um, intuitive, being instantaneous, being understood immediately, but that the process it seems that Moroni seems to be talking about through the sermon in seven is, um, is more work than that, is something that takes more time. Um, and similarly, the promise in Moroni 10 um, is often taken as a, uh, a flash in time, a momentary um, understanding it is true and you're talking about something much more work than that i suppose yeah yeah i think that's exactly right um yeah and uh i mean i think we have to recognize this as a process that takes a lifetime as a result right um the truth of the book of mormon is not something one can discern in a moment uh but takes serious reading and rereading and sifting and rethinking uh, in the same way that uh, a great film takes rewatching and rethinking and so on to see the truth of it, right? Uh, I think that's ultimately how the book works here. And it's not, boom, I've got my testimony. I know which organization to join. Good, I'm set, right? Uh, but instead, this uh, complex deepening so that the truth slowly becomes manifest. So I wanted to highlight uh, a comment from Facebook that talks about um, how these were the verses that really empowered someone um, to return uh, and to, uh, and, and it just struck me that, um, that the way that, the, that we're thinking here about um, encountering Christ, thinking about goodness, um, is it really highlights agency and uh, and she talked about um, empowered to return and I think that's what what you're helping us kind of see right um, that that again like truth is not just something that is you know, out there but but we're empowered to search for goodness and uh, and to uh, you know, reflect through our own intuitions and judgments and, and kind of sift through that and, and look for Christ, look for, uh, look for goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I like comment that comment on agency, because there really is a sense here in which this is a much more agentive, a much more agonistic uh, kind of picture than, than just, uh, I get on my knees, I ask, I get an answer, and now I have a kind of item of knowledge. But yeah, this really is a much more involved whole person kind of thing. Uh, I'm glancing at the comments and I see one early on that I wanna address just cause I think it's really important. So JK Cook says, um, skipping over clarifying that being raped or abused does not deprive someone of their virtue or chastity, just deprives the victim of peace and a feeling of self-worth. I was really nervous about skipping over Moroni eight and nine. So um, thank you for 
expressing your concern about that. I will recommend for anyone who struggles with Moroni 9 and the way it sounds like it's talking about virtue and chastity, please, please read Jason Kerr's essay in the Journal of Book of Mormon Studies in 2017 uh, on that passage. He does a brilliant job of, uh, of analyzing it and its role in Latter-day Saint discourse. So I just wanted to make sure that that gets dropped in there so that doesn't get missed. Another another comment here in the chat has asked you to talk uh, a little more about charity. That's another um, faith was a focus, but uh, but uh, hope and charity are part of this sermon as well. And I wonder if you have some comment or thought about that. Yeah. Um... I mean, obviously he ends on the note of charity and he sees charity as it seems a kind of uh, pinnacle here, right? A kind of um, end point for the whole thing. Uh, it's striking to me that he spends so much more time on faith. This seems to be whatever it is that is driving Mormon's own concerns in his immediate context or Moroni's adaptation of the sermon in his immediate context. Uh, charity gets a little bit of short shrift here. Uh, it's not dwelt on as long as it might've been. Um, However, it's uh, a remarkable passage and um, much of it sounds very like 1 Corinthians 13, but one thing that doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians 13 and that therefore draws uh, my attention is verse 48 opening uh, with this uh, injunction to pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that you may be filled with this love. Um, charity here is not just a kind of attribute and it's not something one is supposed to just sort of oomph into existence in themselves but something we have got to uh, with all the energy of heart pray for it's a gift and one we've got to seek out directly um, so th there's much to say about charity here obviously but this is the thing that grabs me as a believer is the task I have of genuinely earnestly praying for help on that score There's a question here. Do these concerns of Mormon and Moroni reach out to the billions of God's children? Is finding uh, uh, Christ uh, elite, exceptional, uncommon, or is it universal? And I'm, and I'm also thinking about this question in the context of you starting us off thinking about the work of God as being the work of gathering. Mm -hmm. um, and this challenge to step outside of our intuitional intuition and our own kind of moral frameworks that are bounded by history and culture. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I mean, it's striking that he begins with a picture that could be said to be like beyond Christianity, right? What is good comes from God uh, and so on. And he doesn't bring Christ into that picture immediately. But then when he says, here's how to judge, he does. And it feels like suddenly we've narrowed, right? We've narrowed the picture in some way. Uh, into a strictly Christian one. But the fact that he says that the spirit of Christ is given to everyone is crucial. Uh, there's some sense in which there's the picture here is beyond just a merely Christian picture, but also the whole picture is in some sense Christian, sort of cryptically Christian. But maybe more important, I wonder if one of the reasons Moroni includes Moroni 8 right after Moroni 7, this letter from his father about infant baptism, right after having this sermon, is so that we don't miss uh, the absolute mercies of Christ, that anyone who hasn't heard this word, this is a point that gets dwelt on in chapter eight, 
anyone who hasn't heard this word of Christ, who hasn't had an opportunity to let the spirit in Christ in them grab hold of the word of Christ and shine that light on the world yeah. is saved in Christ's atonement. Um, and so the, though there's some sense in which the task looks deeply Christian, it's immediately followed up by, uh, by a warning that we, we shouldn't let that trap us into thinking that only Christians are a part of this picture. Yeah, and that reminds me of a comment. I'm not seeing it um, quickly here, but that, that brings out this reminder that uh, the divine sacrifice is for all people. <laughs> you know, every, every evil, every person, um, Christ's sacrifice, the atonement is, is meant for, for everyone. Um, I'm thinking about this too in the context of um, the Reverend Dr. Willie Jennings, who just mm -hmm. did a couple of workshops at BYU uh, over the last couple of weeks, and he talks about um, the work of God being the work of gathering, and uh, and very much uh, you know shared this vision of uh, putting off uh, our own historical colonial often um, framework, cultural frameworks for thinking about um, the good. Uh, and I'm also thinking about um, the ether's vision that we get a little vision, a little piece of, right? Um, Ronnie's not supposed to share the whole thing, but just a little bit of it. And he's setting up this kind of old, old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem, the old world, the new world, the new heaven, and it and there's a shift from um, there's a shift from the it being about a particular people and a particular historical context and uh, and Christ's you know particular uh, sojourn on the earth being bound by time and place to this new Jerusalem, this new. Um, new world and new heaven that's not centered in a people uh, but rather in a promised land that's a place fundamentally for gathering gathering all who would who would come to christ and and kind of have their be his disciples yeah um, anyway i'm wondering that it's got me thinking about about what Dr. Jennings had to say and about Ether's vision of what kind of we're ultimately working toward, what this gathering is, what the work of God, what the work of Christ is. That's beautiful, yeah. Um, for the moment, uh, I'll respond with Judith Butler of all things. Um, and I'm, I'm not usually one to respond to anything with Judith Butler as uh, Taylor will attest. We've had conversations about Judith Butler, but uh, I just recently read her book, um, notes toward a theory of assembly and um as she's a she's a jewish thinker and one who has thought a great deal about the israelite notion of uh covenant and chosenness and gathering as a result um and what she argues in this book she's thinking about things like the occupy movement and arab spring and all of these kinds of things but she does a really nice job uh there of saying um we have to think about freedom of assembly as distinct from freedom of speech because in freedom of assembly bodies gather without a message uh, without definition and without identities attached and that kind of thing. Uh, whatever else might be decided about the po political project in her book, that struck me as really useful for thinking about the gathering of Israel. Um, Sharon Harris and I were talking about this the other day and she uh, especially helped me see this more clearly, that there's some sense in which um, in, in bodies gathering 
as bodies, right? There's a certain universal grasp of what it is for human beings to be human beings. And this focus on place, like you're saying, I think really nicely in Ether 13 and so on, uh, if there's a public space which we have prepared and made possible for us to gather as bodies, to gather in body, then there's some sense in which we can scrap all of our fighting and uh, fussing over identities and uh, acceptance because we dwell together and work together to live together in love. That, uh, I think that's the vision of Zion. Well, I'd, I'd love to stop with the vision of Zion. I, that's beautiful. But, uh, but, there, but there's a different direction that some questions go and that, uh, that I'm also curious about. They, um, maybe this is you as philosopher. Um, one of the things you're talking about here is, a, is an idea of good, of an idea of finding good in the book, which speaks to maybe a difference, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Of, of, uh, of a difference between a kind of binary, right, wrong, truth, no truth that we uh, associate maybe with a court trial, with a, with a decision. Um, there's something more, there's, uh, there's a bigger picture or something more like um, someone commented about the ripeness of fruit that is um, in that idea of good. And I, uh, is, it, is that enough to get you talking? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think there's, uh, it's beautiful that, well, I should say, uh, I didn't mention this along the way, but Moroni 7 in many ways seems to be Mormon's sermonic reflection on Alma 32. A lot of the same language shows up. Perfect knowledge uh, is a maybe key example. Uh, but it seems to be Mormon sorting out for himself the um, that sermon that Alma gives among the Zormites. And of course, in that sermon, uh, when Alma talks about the moment of recognizing the seed as being good, uh, the way he describes it is, you can taste this light, right? So he fuses this uh, metaphor that, Mor that Mormon is using in Moroni 7 of light with, uh, with a metaphor of tasting, um, which is really quite, I mean, provocative, right? Uh, poetically provocative. But also, I mean, there's something beautiful about taste. Taste is something that has to be refined. It's never immediate uh, unless it's salt or sugar. Those are the only two things we've been evolved to uh, recognize with a kind of immediacy. But so much of what goes on with taste is this kind of complex, uh, cultivated sensibility for things so that we can see how much more is at play there and to catch tones and flavors and, uh, and highlights. Um, yeah, it seems to me that taste is a really good way of uh, thinking about this. Uh, so, um, from uh, kind of extrapolating from a question posed here, um, how I, I maybe I'll do a couple of things. So, um, we had the recent campaign, the Give Thanks campaign, right, and the recentering of um, how and what we're thinking about toward the good. Um, and I think there was a lot of beauty and folks appreciated many aspects of that, um, but there were also some criticisms of that. Um, so I'm wondering, kind of thinking about this as well as about kind of how we tend to think and talk about, and especially missionaries teach uh, Moroni 10 a little differently <laughs> than um, what you've suggested today. Yeah. Um, how can we kind of approach some of those practices and teaching 
teachings um, in a way that brings us really closer to Christ and to this, this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a great question. Um, I mean, I wonder if the principle of consecration is maybe a good way to think about all of this. And that sort of circles back to talk of a new Jerusalem and a Zion, right? Um, consecration to make something sacred, right? To take something that could be merely worldly, merely mundane, and to offer it up to God in such a way that it becomes sacred. I wonder if this is one way of thinking about what it means to shine Christ as a light onto something. If there is anything redeemable, if there's anything good in it, uh, then my task is not just to discern the bad parts and make sure the critique has been given, right? Though there are times where that's really crucial, right? Uh, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Spirit, right? But, uh, but that most of the time, my task is probably uh, to find what is good there and extract that and build that and, uh, and recognize that the whole then might be consecrated. Uh, again, to think of the prayer that Moroni asks us to offer, in Moroni 10, uh, if it's sacramental, then I'm to find the good and see how that might be transformed into the body and blood of Christ, uh, rather than seek first uh, for whatever can be criticized or whatever might be problematic, though it's there. Uh, I, I'll name or Tiani Coleman mentions that we, one reading of charity here is is like we talk about a charitable reading. Yeah. That uh, at, 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 that's a way to be finding finding the best that is in the text, finding the uh, or in the in the message. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's a. Uh, I've loved ever since I first learned that as an undergraduate. Once once upon a time, I've loved that way of speaking of charity. That it means right to read something looking for the best possible version of it, right, uh, and uh, and to find something redeemable in it. This is, I think, what charity looks like concretely. So we have um, folks who are contemplating, you know, how do we take this and um, and approach, um, you know, some of the some of the challenges and divisions that we often see um, church members creating in our own our our own kind of um, historical and cultural and and theological frameworks, you know, limiting what we see as good. How do we, maybe how do we begin to really um, shine the light of Christ on our own hearts and minds, both as individuals and as a faith community? Yeah, um, yeah, that is, I mean, I think that's the million dollar question, right? Um, how do we do that? And I think, um, I don't know, this sounds like an Aristotelian way of putting it maybe, right? But uh, I think we should probably err on the side we know we're, um, we're likely to miss. And so I think that if, uh, if one is sort of liberally minded, then they ought, to read, uh, they ought to read the gospels asking where a non-liberal picture shows up sometimes, right? Uh, and if someone is conservatively minded, they ought to read the gospels asking where a non-conservative Jesus shows up so that we know we're not just um, looking in a mirror as we read. 
Christ is way bigger than our, than our ideologies, um, which is not to say like love and let's all sing Kumbaya, but it is to say we, we have to recognize that we're blind uh, and that we're more likely, uh, we're more likely than not to make Jesus fit our own image. Um, as, uh, as my friend Adam Miller likes to say, right? Uh, if, some, if someone agrees with me, I should be suspicious. And I think above all, <laughs> that's the case if we're dealing with, with Christ. Um, and I think that's just a kind of discipline we have to impose on ourselves. Yeah, I'm not sure this is exactly related. I could call, call it a bridge, but, I, but one of the things I love about the, your approach today is that it, um, it speaks to the Book of Mormon as a, as a universal message. Uh, I mean, there's a tendency we have to read as though it is addressed to Mormons. Um, uh, if I can use that word, uh, <laughs> members of the church or people who are converted or people who have had the uh, Moroni 10 experience and uh, that or, or learning. Um, but the way you're addressing it and speaking to it today, it, it, it sounds, it has the feeling of Moroni speaking to everybody, to, um, to the world. Find the good here. Find the... Um, uh, not necessarily as a as a convert to something specific, but find the good in the book. And I, that's uh, I love that about the message. But let uh, invite you to expand on that if you would. Yeah, um, and I mean I'm thinking here Second Nephi uh, twenty nine, where Nephi talks about books coming forth all over the world and there being a kind of global library of God's revelations to human beings. And reading that in light of the, the classic 1978 First Presidency statement about God having given light to Muhammad and to Plato and to, um, to whole nations to, uh, to bring people closer to Christ um, and to God in general. I mean, I want to say what Moroni is teaching us in Moroni 10 tells us how to read the Book of Mormon, but also how to read the Bhagavad Gita and how to read the Adi Grant and how to read uh, the Quran and how to read the Hebrew Bible. And yeah, I think... Uh, something like the same thing. Can I shine Christ on that and see something also? Can I uh, begin to discern my way toward good? Because um, these things, these things have as much to teach us uh, and to teach us about Christ. If you want to understand grace, Buddhism is a really good source <laughs> for understanding how grace operates. Um, if you want to understand what it means to speak of a prophet and trust in a prophet, the Quran may be one of the best sources we've got. Um, we, uh, we have more to learn, I think, from everything around us than we think we do. Well, thank you, Joe, and perhaps we'll continue. There's lots of other comments and thoughts percolating around, um, but uh, I'll just uh, stop and, and thank you. And, uh, and I love that kind of thought, especially as we go into um, this season, um, thinking about shining the light of Christ and thinking about the light of Christ in, uh, in new ways that, that work toward this vision of, of gathering. We end our gospel study today with music and a prayer. And I am inviting a Dialogue Foundation board member and art director extraordinaire, uh, Andy Pitcher Davis to introduce that. Thank you. 
it's, this has just been a wonderful experience. And uh, just briefly, I wanted to introduce um, uh, a good friend of mine, but also just a, a, a person who has, uh, speaks with a voice of authenticity and has uh, very much a, a heart that is sincere. And I find that there's no higher accolade to, uh, to, to be associated with those that have participated at, at dialogue this, this past year in the Sunday school session, then to be authentic in voice and also to, uh, to have a heart that is sincere. And it has been a joy and an honor for me personally, but also on behalf of the board, um, I wanted to extend a thank you to all of you who have participated. Miriam, uh, I was texting her late last night and it was a big ask that I said, would you jump in We'd like you to, we're wondering if you might lead us in, in, a, in a Christmas carol, because how many of us won't be gathered in person? How many of us won't be singing together? And uh, Silent Night, of course, came to mind. And of course, this is, she's the one also who's taught me about, so much about how art and music can be the bridge that comes together and, and fills in, is the bridge between sometimes divided parties completely. We all know the story of Silent Night. And um, what's interesting to me is, is another hymn. I asked Miriam also, I got an invitation to participate in, a, to play Mormon hymns in the Kirtland Temple. And we were invited by a community of Christ and it's a big ask. And she was the first I called and she was the first that said yes. And my life was changed there. And again, maybe a bridge between divided spaces through art and music that is that comes together. I mean, that is what dialogue is, that we come together and that we discuss things and we, and we do these things. And she sang a version of, um, it was acapella and out of the clear blue sky, she sung her own arrangement of, um, it may not be on the mountain height, Right. Um, and it was so pure and clear that I thought that I would just share one verse before for doing this, because when have us and when have we not been the wanderer this year? When, you know, when has when have we not said, you know, this this path is a path and, uh, that is rough and train might be difficult to cross and and when have we not been really blessed by the sincere hearts and the voices of authenticity um, who have participated? And the last verse I'm just gonna leave here and then I'm gonna, I, I'll, I'll leave it over to, to Miriam. There's surely somewhere a lowly place in earth's harvest field so wide where I may labor through life's short day for Jesus the crucified so trusting my all to thy tender care and knowing thou lovest me, I'll do thy will with a heart sincere. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord, over mountain and plain and sea. I'll say what you want me to say, dear Lord. I'll be what you want me to be. And that is exactly who we are. Authentic souls who have gathered. Um, and, I'll, and I would like to leave it there, but a special thank you to those who've shown up, special thank you to Rebecca and Chris 
for the for our really fine editor Taylor for um, for all of those who have been the first to respond and say yes I can do this it might be rough uh, but I can do this and to their families who who have given up Sundays for almost a year sometimes there's such a community there and such a love and I thought this is my people this is my family also and and as a community and as a as a, as a a group of us gathered together I'm wondering if we might sing a simple Christmas song what do you think Miriam I think it'd be really fun I think it's really hard to do on zoom I that's something that I miss more than anything else is just being able to be unified through music and um so I'm I'm gonna play a recording that I did with Don Parker of Silent Night, and then we can just sing with it. Is that okay? And we have words. I know this will feel a bit awkward, and I should mention, and I forgot to mention, um, among Marion's <laughs> many accolades, also is that she's been award choir director for twenty years, and I just thought, in that spirit, that we we just love the, uh, to have something that is familiar that tastes. Um, like something from the time before. So I thank you for doing this, all of everyone. And I'm going to be singing at my computer <laughs> with the mic off. But I, I really just want to wish everybody, we want to thank everyone who's participated and say Merry, Merry Christmas. And thank goodness we had this time to review these, this body of scripture and feast on the words of, of Christ. And we did find that it probably is going to be on a mountain height and probably will be a stormy sea and that it probably will be at the battle's front but all of you have shown up for us in our time of need Oh, sing 
just one more verse. <laughs> Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the gift of thy son and for the knowledge that um, that we get to choose and to see the good around us and that we know of thy love and that we have an opportunity to share that love with everyone around us. Please help us to be more like thee each day. We pray and we thank thee for these blessings in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you. I'll put a link. This might embarrass her, but I, I would love to share this 